I watched a, a Mankiewicz interview where he was like on TCM at some point, and and you could tell that Mankiewicz was just shitting fucking bricks. Like his questions, he's nervous. Like he's like, I'm yeah. gonna set him off. Like Mankiewicz uncharacteristic, like like tripping over his words and like very cautiously like trying to phrase things. Like clearly, like he understood who he was dealing with. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm sure he did. I'm sure many Manks had many run-ins with Jerry Lewis over the years. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. How many times at many a dinner Manx. table had he heard a, an anecdote about Jerry? The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you. That's hot out there. That's, we don't walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and as always, I'm here with... Ryan Saunders and Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us picks a theme for the week and the other two pick movies to watch in response to that theme. And we come on here and hash it out in the Gauntlet studio. It was my topic this week. It's episode 45, April Fools. And I asked you two to bring me fools uh, to enjoy, perhaps laugh at, laugh with, or cry with, you know? And uh, <laughs> you guys certainly delivered not just uh, a couple of fools, but two families of fools. So we are, we are like, yeah, stuffed to the brim. Uh, with fools this week, we're fooling around big time. So uh, that's uh, that's what we have in store. So why don't we get to it, uh, Ryan? Why don't you tell us about what you picked first? Well, at this point in my life, the word fool has become impossible to disassociate with the greatest fool of them all in, in my book, or at least one of the one of the great cinema fools, and that's Jerry Lewis. And uh, the moment you announced the topic, this was the very first film that popped into my head, and that is The Family Jewels from 1965. Not only just because it features Jerry Lewis, it's a Jerry Lewis-directed picture, but because it features seven Jerry Lewises. So we have a whole litany of fools that were forced to endure for the duration of The, the Family Jewels. And to give just like a brief rundown on what exactly the core idea of this film is, it involves a young heiress uh, named Donna, whose industrialist father has died and has left behind a $30 million fortune. And in his will, he specifies that Donna now has to choose amongst her six uncles to pick 
which father is most suitable for her and which one she enjoys uh, spending the time with the most and perhaps now the rest of her life with. So that's the structure of the film and it ends up being very episodic or very sketch-like where we have Willard, played by Jerry Lewis, the warm-hearted chauffeur that drives her around and isn't allowed to influence her decision-making on which uncle should walk away with the uh, big dad prize and the big uh, $30 million jackpot that comes with uh, being a father in the situation. And that's, yeah, from that point on, that's the film. She's visiting each of these uncles, each one played by Jerry Lewis, each an extreme variation on characters he's done in the past and a few new ones. We have such things as embittered, tax-hating clowns, we have curmudgeon-y sailors that are more mustache than man, we have um, cartoonish gangsters, we, we have everything. I really love this film. It, it may be my favorite Jerry Lewis film. I don't know if it's his best, but it has a very like warm spot for me. I feel like when I was getting into Jerry Lewis, his cinema frightened me and he frightened me and I didn't exactly know how to process most of it. And I think it was this film where everything sort of clicked and fell into place. And there are certain vignettes in it that to me feel extremely modern in their anti-humor and their weird comedic sensibilities and how durational everything feels. Jerry just milking these gags in a way that are well, well beyond uh, how far they should go. And it, the way it plays on your brain while you're watching it creates a unique effect. And it's a beautiful looking film too. I guess I should just briefly point out, right? This is a Jerry Lewis film from 1965. It's a Paramount production. This thing is lavish pop colors, primary colors everywhere, intricately designed sets and locations. It's, you know, it's Jerry with his total filmmaker sensibilities, you know, going in for the kill with the family jewels. And it's a perverse film because of that, right? It's, you know, Jerry's always wrestling with his own ideas of himself as a comedian, and this film is both in presenting himself as like this beautiful, loving, caring figure. He's also, you know, using time to celebrate his own son's work. There's like scenes dedicated to just listening to his son's music. Uh, so it's a very narcissistic film in many respects, uh, as Jerry was a very bad, narcissistic, scary man. And it's that danger that makes me laugh. So I like these dangerous fools. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the family jewels. Thank you very much. Andy, what about you? You know, this is a, a word that Ryan used in his intro that uh, I think really lays over my entire uh, experience with the film that I chose. Ryan, you just used the word perverse. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> when you pick the topic, I, like Ryan, I think had an immediate sort of gut reaction of a film for, for the topic of fools. And uh, it's one that uh, I saw quite a few years ago uh, when it initially came out and I hadn't revisited it since, but it's, it's been in the back of my mind. So when you chose this topic, it was perfect for me. And uh, that is the film from 2015 called Men and Chicken, directed by Anders Thomas Jensen, a, a Danish filmmaker. And this is a Danish film about two brothers initially that were introduced to Elias and Gabriel. And uh, they very quickly, as the film opens, uh, have to face uh, something awful, the, the death of their father. But to build upon that 
that drama and that sense of loss that the characters experience, they uh, watch a, a videotape that their father had left for them, uh, a message from beyond the grave, perhaps. And in this message, he informs Elias and Gabriel that he is not their biological father. This then sets these two brothers off on a journey to discover their biological father, who they've been told is a man named Evilio Thanatos, and he lives on a secluded island in the, the south of Denmark, the island of Ork. And so Elias and Gabriel set off on their journey, and when they arrive at the home that is supposed to contain their father, they meet their other brothers. They meet three more men who they discover are their half-brothers, I suppose, because it's revealed that all of them share the same father, Evilio Thanatos, but each of them has had a different mother, all of whom have died in childbirth. So Evilio Thanatos is the only figure uh, on this planet linking these half-brothers. Elias and Gabriel are then introduced uh, very violently, (laughs) very, uh, very shockingly, to their brothers, Franz, Joseph, and Gregor. And something that that really should be established right away is that there is, even though they all share different mothers, you know, a certain physical feature that links all of these brothers. They discover that all of them have hair lips and have had their 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 lip uh, sort of surgically reconstructed. So there is this strange. Uh, physical similarity that they all share. The, and the noses, too. Their noses are all a little, yeah, messed up in different ways, but they have they have uh, very interesting facial features. Uh, they're all pretty sort of ugly and grotesque in their own ways, and there's a lot more to them that will be somewhat uh, grotesque and interesting. And, uh, yeah, this then really just sort of launches the rest of the film, which is a a strange, weird, absurd, dark comedy about family, about the things that link us, the things that separate us. And it's also sort of an interesting kind of existential tale as well. There's a lot of discussion about man's meaning, our, our search for meaning, our search for purpose and connection in this strange world that we live in. It's it's kind of like, I mean, how best to describe it? You know, it's really like a sort of slapstick comedy uh, that, that has been thrust very violently with uh, like a Deleuzian exploration of, of, of becoming animal. So there's a lot in there about men, chickens, dogs, bulls, and all other kinds of <laughs> of, of animals. Uh, and it is a very, very, very funny movie to me. I, I, I really connect with its humor. It's also starring uh, one of my favorite actors, the great Mads Mikkelsen as Elias, uh, the, the very uh, impulsive, violent brother who um, probably seems to be jerking off in just about every other scene. So there's a lot of Mads Mikkelsen masturbating in a very like gross way in this movie. It's kind of a gnarly movie, but I think it's a it's a really fun movie for us to to pick apart. Thank you, Andy. You know, it, it struck me immediately the sort of big connection between these films is 
yes, they're about family, but even more than that, they're sort of about these children in, in search of a home, you know? And after watching The Family Jewels, I did, uh, you know, a little consultation with uh, a Jerry Lewis expert. So I pulled up a, a classic Rosenbaum piece about Jerry Lewis and a, a particular section of it struck me that maybe relates to both of these films. And so Rosenbaum writes, the degree to which he, Jerry Lewis, challenges, provokes, embarrasses, and sometimes even scares and troubles his public already sets him apart from Alan, Chaplin, Keaton, Lloyd, Langdon, and Tati, arguably placing his work closer to that of someone like Poe than to most other comics, though far <laughs> removed from Poe's representational strategies or his sense of narrative continuity in its obsessive, nightmarish intensity. Mm. This intensity both reflects and solicits a sort of passionate ambivalence that could be traced back to Lewis's showbiz parents who failed to show up for their only son's bar mitzvah and left most of their parenting chores to grandparents and an aunt. The begging and pleading for attention that soon became part of Lewis's performing style were clearly a response to a feeling of abandonment and to the panicky emotional hunger it fostered, an aesthetics of excess predicated on the assumption that even too much could never be enough. <laughs> <laughs> that is like one of my favorite constants in the film criticism world is the amount of like beautiful writing that's been inspired by the aggressive lowbrow comedy of Jerry Lewis. It is insane how much people have written. I mean, I think he deserves it. I do actually think he's a great filmmaker and makes great films, but it is remarkable how many like very deeply serious film theorists have taken the time to write about this type of cinema. Yeah. I mean, I, I watched a, a, in, you know, sort of preparation for this as well, like uh, a, a few interviews with Jerry Lewis and, and I found it interesting in, in like how many of them uh, he was talking about his family. And that's, you know, really so it seems like such a huge aspect of of what mm -hmm. did push him, what did drive him. I mean, even from his own explanation of, of, you know, what motivated him, what pushed him, like it was very clear that there was a very strong family dynamic. And by strong family dynamic, I don't necessarily mean like in a positive way, but it, <laughs> no. it really, you know, it, it almost like seemed to me like a, a, a big factor in, in what pushed him was this sense of, of, you know, trying to sort of lash out at his, at his parents on a certain level. Yeah, I mean, that's something that's present in so many of his films. I feel like one of the most satanic images ever put on film was the image of Professor Kelp as a baby, but a full-grown baby, because it's just Jerry Lewis inside his crib thinking about his parents and, like, begging for attention and feeling as if he's been abandoned in this giant jail <laughs> baby crib. So you've got Jerry Lewis dressed in his, like, diapies, you know? Yeah, and it just really struck me, of course, because, you know, Men and Chicken is so much about these sort of, like, you know, to me, they were initially yeah, registering as, like, 
Casper Hauser kind or like Dogtooth kind of, you know, characters who've been extremely sheltered and are basically living in this, you know, alternate universe. But mm-hmm. uh, their sense of abandonment and just kind of like, yeah, they're they're just like in flux in this bizarre world of their father's creation, you know, and they're just kind of trapped in it. Thought it was interesting that that's sort of at the core of. Yes, two movies about just absolute weirdos, you know, <laughs> fools. I mean, right? honestly, this is one of my favorite pairings we've ever done on the show because they create such a remarkable point counterpoint. Because, like as I mentioned, I've I've seen the Family Jewels before, so I watched Men and Chicken first, and while I was watching it, it was like all of these things were firing off in my brain, all these synaptic connections, and just. I mean, apart from the fact that they're both about figures who have lost their fathers and that are now on a search for, you know, a new father or a new family, there's also all of these other elements at play, even to like just thinking one of the first ones that pops into my head is the locations of these films and the constructed spaces. So we have the lavish production design of a Jerry Lewis Paramount film that looks as clean and clinical as possible. And then we have the decrepit and decaying and clearly quite smelly and weird mansion that all of the brothers live in Men and Chicken. It's remarkable watching all of these fools walk around in these spaces that have been catered towards their personality. So even when we're visiting all of the different uncles in Family Jewels. It feels like its own little world that only belongs to them. And at the same time in Men and Chicken, this is clearly a world that only belongs to these guys, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, both films, I think, uh, you know, feature a lot of interaction with the milieu in, in both cases, uh, and it's like so, so important to a lot of the the physical comedy that is showcased in both of these films. Because, you know, I think with Jerry Lewis uh, going into a Jerry Lewis film, you you know what you're going to to get in that regard. You know, mm-hmm. he's a very he's a very physical performer. Uh, but I think Men and Chicken would would surprise a lot of people, especially with someone like Mads Mikkelsen in it. That you know, I mean, so much of of this film is like very physical, very, you know, at times violent slapstick comedy. And so much of it is uh, amplified by the the space specifically. Because, you know, you say lavish production design in the case of, uh, of a Jerry Lewis production, I think it's also quite lavish in the case of Men <laughs> sure. and Chicken, but certainly on the opposite end of the spectrum because, you know, it cannot be emphasized enough how bizarre this, you know, house that they're in. I mean, it's bigger than a house. It seems like like an abandoned hospital of some kind, which certainly uh, makes sense the deeper that we get into. Yeah, I think it was a sanatorium. Was it, yes. Originally, yeah. Right, a sanatorium. In the, from the 30s. And even think about then the formal approaches to both of these spaces and how they make you feel in the world of these fools, right? With the Jerry film, everything is locked down on a tripod. Movement is very calculated and slow and very like carefully organized. And we have this film, which is, you know, it looks like 
a film from 2015. It's it makes you feel like you're actually in these rooms. It's primarily handheld. There's steady cam work. You feel like you're walking. You feel like you're getting shit on your shoe from walking yeah. in these hallways with all of these animals and probably Mads Mikkelsen's come like littering the hallways <laughs> of this building i really like too. you know one of the details of the house is that they're always making cheese and so they're always like hanging cheese and there's like wheels of cheese everywhere <laughs> uh and yeah i think both you know both filmmakers in the cases of these films are going nuts with the production design you know especially too because i think andy's trying to bury the lead but the the brothers uh in Men and Chicken often attack each other and strangers and other people they know with various <laughs> wep- with various <laughs> weapons, but specifically like taxidermy. Like the one brother is like mm-hmm. always attacking people with like a, a stuffed animal uh, that's like attached to you know like a board uh, and just smacking them with it. Yeah, we're we're introduced to him by by him assaulting the character of Gabriel with a a stuffed swan. So you know very very. It seems like every scene too, he's got a different, he's wielding a different animal. (laughs) And I think it's funny too. And this is something that's really present in a lot of physical comedy is the new meaning that can be placed on objects or even the inverse of that. I think one of the things I love so much about Jerry's physical comedy is how he strips meaning away from objects. So there's a really amusing scene in The Family Jewels where his, you know, the British uncle is acting like a pool hustler and he goes up to a bunch of different pool cues that are lined up on the wall and the way he's inspecting them is obviously so at odds with what you would actually be looking for in like a good pool cue to use. And I, I'm even struggling even to think about how to describe what he does, but he might as well be sniffing it, right? The way he touches it and handles it, it's all of a sudden what we're looking at doesn't even seem like it's a pool cue anymore because of how he's stripped meaning from it. And then even in this film, think of, in Men and Chicken, think about the way importance is placed on certain objects such as plates that they all have preference for they all have, like different animals on them and then at the same time thinking about how they're constantly repurposing all of these objects you know to them taxidermied animals are weapons they're not just something that's around for decoration and i mean they even treat cheese with almost like a holy reverence and yeah, I think that that's something that is sort of baked into comedy in the way that it's trying to redefine how the objects interact with the characters in the space to create new gags. But it does feel especially present in both of these films with these fools and how they see the things in their spaces. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely like something that that is very uh, central as well to the idea of men and chicken, which is sort of reevaluating our understanding of 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 everything in our world, and and even of of perhaps what makes us who we are, and, <laughs> sure. and I specifically yeah. mean even like human, uh, right. <laughs> you know how how we can love each other, how we can interact with each other. Uh, so you know, it's it's like uh, I described it in my intro as this weird sort of yeah like. Laurel and Hardy meets, you know, uh, Gilles Deleuze's A Thousand Plateaus. But I think it's like it's very, very appropriate in this case, because what you're actually talking about then is a sense of like deterritorialization of of Mm -hmm. 
both what Jerry Lewis is doing and and what is certainly happening here, where where boundaries or distinctions uh, suddenly seem so arbitrary to us, you know, for for how we would categorize something, you know, and, and as, you know, you put it, you know, like purpose something like this is for this, you know, uh, no, it's not, or I should (laughs) say, uh, not even in that regard, because then that becomes a sort of binary distinction, but, but more that it's, well, it, it can be so much more than you think it is. And that kind of, uh, creativity in the case of, of Jerry Lewis is, is so magical to us. You know, and you can, I, I think in this case for me, like I really started to see uh, all of the the great, you know, pantomime artists and physical comedians, many of whom were referenced in that piece by uh, Rosenbaum, that, that Lewis is clearly sort of building upon, touching in his work, the people who have inspired him very much that he sees himself as a part of this legacy, as someone that is, mm-hmm. you know, in, again, in his own narcissistic way, even like one-upping, you know, and, sure. and taking to the next level. And and specifically, you brought up that 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 pool uh, sequence. And, you know, that was a huge part of W.C. Field's routines in like many of his shorts and in his movies and and even things where he would just sort of be a guest star. uh, He has a lot of like pool bits. And watching him, I could see him clearly maybe even paying homage to a guy like W.C. Fields. And, it crossed my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, you know, playing with it. But but even then, you know, taking these things to a, a new level, taking them even further than Yeah, he seems to reinvent thought. billiards completely in that sequence. It, you know, it, it makes no fucking sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, his body, the way his body moves doesn't resemble how any billiard player ever moves right the way he prepares it's one of my favorite see i don't even know how to describe it on the pod because it's just so visual but the way he prepares for a shot where he'll lean down and then he'll hop back up and just start thrusting the pool cue into the air very very rapidly as if he's like revving up in order to get himself going and then he leans back down and then hop backs up again because he's compulsive (laughs) you watch anybody behaving like that on like a televised billiards broadcast um it would make the news. Never gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting that you put it in that uh, way uh, as well because I I watched an interview that that Mads had given on Men and Chicken. You know, when he was sort of like at I think uh, I saw him at the Reykjavik Film Festival uh, talking about the film, like you know, afterwards to to the audience and and specifically about like the approach to comedy of Anders Thomas Jensen. And he's worked with him quite a bit. Uh, I think Mads has been in like four or five of his films. He's like a big fan mm. of his. But, you know, he 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 was saying that that so much of what, you know, the, the, the comedy in Men and Chicken is all about is you know, taking something serious. You know, it's it's like you start with 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 being serious, you start with drama. And you you push that seriousness, you push that intensity uh, of a disagreement or, you know, uh, eating dinner, you know, whatever it is, you know, uh, uh, an activity, and you push it so far into seriousness that it becomes comedic. And I think it's very similar mm-hmm. to, to what 
you know, you're talking about here and, and Jerry Lewis's approach. I mean, he's, he's really taking that pool game seriously. He's taking it more seriously than anyone yeah. in that room. You know, <laughs> the biggest clown in the room is the guy that's, that's taking the game most seriously. And there's a few other instances of that in this film of, of people taking something trivial or a game uh, extremely seriously. You know, there's the bit with the gangster playing hopscotch. And it's funny because of, of this like children's game that's being taken as if it's life or death, you know? Uh, and, and it's definitely the case in men and chicken it, that there'll be disagreements over something ridiculous. Like you mentioned the plates, you know, uh, there's this scene where they're all sitting down to have dinner and there are a series of plates that feature animal pictures on them. And we discover that there's a hierarchy to the three brothers who've been living in the, right. in the, the abandoned <laughs> sanitarium or whatever of, of which is the best animal plate to have. And, uh, they take it so seriously that it really just sort of ruins the whole like dinner and everyone's very upset. And of course, Gabriel and Elias are trying to just sort of like make sense of, uh, what seems to be to us like insanity. But as we will discover, as the film builds on, uh, there's an order and there's a system here and, and right. one that maybe Gabriel and Elias and even the other brothers themselves uh, hadn't quite yet fully understood. You know, they're on the, the right track, but <laughs> they're they're sort of barking, barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of smacks on the head uh, between brothers before they <laughs> before they get there. For sure. Yeah, I particularly love with those plates, the way that Elias tries to temper the situation by offering his own plate, which features an owl on it. And then, of course, all of the brothers scoff at the mere yeah. mention of that. Worst plate. It's the worst plate, <laughs> yeah. you fool. Like, why? How could you ever think that this would, you know, appease him who who wants the the dog plate, right? <laughs> and I, I think that that element also, like the inverse of it, is present even in the opening scene of the family jewels, where something very serious is occurring, but it is just a game to our protagonist, right, Willard, the chauffeur, where an actual heist is occurring and Jerry Lewis who's playing baseball with a little league with a bunch of children yeah, yeah. he's yeah and i could it's hard to tell like he's seemingly just on the team but he yes. he the ball goes over the fence and in order to go and get it he stumbles into an actual crime scene and it's just Jerry stumbling around trying to get a ball so even then here's something that is purportedly very serious and to him it's just a game he's just trying to get the ball back and that's a great reveal, too, because the ball goes through the fence. It doesn't go over the fence. So it's still in play. And he makes the throw to home from behind the fence. Yeah. And it's really funny because, like, while this is occurring, he's, like, accidentally taking down all the heist guys. As viewers, we don't know what baseball game is being played. And then it cuts to children. And I was like, holy <laughs> shit, he just, like, gunned out a child at home plate. It was so funny to me. And, and again, 
again, that's another sort of like thing that I really enjoyed about Family Jewels is the off screen mm-hmm. space usage. You know, he's so into revealing something we heard or sort of like separating these spaces in like really interesting ways that always, you know, comes around to a gag of some kind. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that's through sound as well, like you mentioned, revealing things we heard or then presenting us with audio and then stripping it away artificially, whether that's from a closed door and the audience, the audio is completely muffled and gone in a way that it wouldn't normally be, or other different tricks that are, that are at play in, in that sense. And then even then, in thinking about off-screen space, right, sometimes that off-screen space is literally us, You know, Mm -hmm. there are moments of the fourth wall being broken and we become a part of that world in the film of things happening outside of the frame. I also really like after the scene with, you know, the heist being interrupted by Jerry's antics, how when he teams back up with Donna, uh, who is also on the Little League team, and we realize, we learn about the relationship. We learn that this Jerry that we just met is Willard, the chauffeur, and he has to take Donna back to the estate so they can get everything settled for this big process of going through all the different uncles to, to see who the father will be. And I really like, this is one of the first instances of the durational quality of Jerry Lewis's cinema that's on display. We get them transferring from their baseball outfits into their respectable attire, right? Returning to society. She's she's quite wealthy, you know? She's putting on her, her like, petticoat. It's very colorful. She has to look proper, and Jerry is really struggling to get his, his you know, his very tight-fitting chauffeur outfit on. But that scene goes on forever in a way that you wouldn't (laughs) see even in movies of the time, but especially not now. And I think he's, you know, drawing attention to that fact about them, these fools putting on these clothes to re-enter society. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Again, another, like, uh, play on perspective and Mm -hmm. what we think Uh, And there's a lot of that that's going to be delivered throughout this film, that we're introduced to someone and we are led to make assumptions about someone, either their bravery, their goodness, their humor, their sensitivity, whatever it is. And uh, Jerry Lewis like revels in in twisting that around for us. And Mm -hmm. I think, again, reveals a lot of what's what's on his mind you know that that jerry lewis is also uh, critiquing certain aspects of filmmaking and certain uh roles and certain individuals even because i think i i i you know i i can't really tell i i i i can't be sure about this but but some of his personas uh, seem very similar to other performers who are out there in the world on a certain level that Jerry Lewis might be making a comment about or, again, sure. riffing on or referencing. Uh, for example, the, uh, the, the, the pilot character is very much in his uh, character design and his costume and the way he carries himself like a, a, an, an almost like spitting image for the British 
comedic actor Terry Thomas, who had been uh, quite popular in England and in some other American films. And I was wondering, like, is he is he doing Terry Thomas? You know, Terry Thomas has the elaborate mustache and the big gap between his front teeth and glasses. And, and, and he carries himself and much of his humor in a very similar way to that captain. I mean, the clown is is barely even funny. I mean, it's just outright Jerry Lewis's like nastiness coming out in that whole bit. Yeah, there, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's very different than so many of the other sequences, but it just simply seems to be a point that he's trying to make about, you know, the many sides of Jerry and uh, the many sides of performers. I think in general, exactly. You know? Yeah, that's something I feel like he's reckoning with throughout this idea that he's only for children. He's both acknowledging that and resisting it throughout a lot of these different characters, whether that's him literally playing Little League with a group of children or then having a clown talking about how they're all brats and he wants nothing to do with them and he wants to flee the country and live in Switzerland. Real crusty the Clown vibes in uh, Everett, the uh, clown in Family Jewels. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No more makeup. No more ghastly one-nighters. Best of all, no more squealing brats. This time tomorrow night, I shall be on my way to Switzerland. Switzerland? I don't understand. I'm curious. Why Switzerland, Everett? Boy, I'll tell you why. Because while you creeps were busy squandering your money, I was putting mine in Swiss banks, looking for the day when I might choose to retire. The day has come. And I don't have to listen to those squealing brats the rest of my life. Those brats, as far as I'm concerned, are the reason for existing. Hooray for you, sucker. And as far as I'm concerned, those brats were nothing but a means to an end. And I'm there now, or at least I will be in a few days. Oh, you'll be back. You'll miss your country, if nothing else. No chance, sweetheart. I've taken care of that. I've renounced my United States citizenship for a couple of reasons. One being, no more taxes. Boy, we're certainly going to miss you, pal. Uh, but it strikes me, Andy, you know, to your point about how, yeah, like nothing is really ever as it seems and people are never really as they seem. I mean, I think very obviously a similar thing happens in Men and Chicken, where as a, as a viewer especially, you are led to make certain assumptions about these characters, right? And that's by design. Mm -hmm. When we're introduced to Mads, he's got a mustache, he's got this curly hair, uh, and he has basically like... Uh, found a, a psychotherapist to go on a date with so he could get free therapy and she's a woman in a wheelchair and by the end of the date he's berating her and then jerking off in the bathroom you know <laughs> and you go like oh wow okay you know like who's this guy what's his deal right and then you know we learn a lot more uh, <laughs> about yeah. that, you oh, know, yeah. by the end of the film, but uh, it leads us to, yeah, false assumptions. Uh, and that's an interesting aspect, I think, of uh, what's going on in Men and Chicken are the assumptions we make. And then as that gets perpetually peeled back, you know, uh, and it led me to think again about, you know, one of the first great gags in Family Jewels is the uh, ferry boat captain uncle's World War II story uh, where 
he recollects, <laughs> you know, his time as a, as a quote war hero. And we hear his voiceover as he's telling the story to Donna and none of it matches up with the flashback itself. So that's such a thing that, yeah, Jerry's really leaning into throughout uh, all of it. And of course, you know, one of my favorite jokes is he pulls out uh, the Nazi flag out of the, uh, the torpedo that's stuck in the side of their boat. I bent to the task of removing that delicate fuse. The tools became literal extensions of my surgeon-like hands. Dexterity became a watchword. The ticking continued. How long did I have? A minute? Suddenly, something gave. A small door. And then a discovery, a small one, but important. It was a Russian torpedo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and they have that, yeah, they have that in common. And and I think Men and Chicken 2 has a, a different kind of, of off-screen space, but a, an important element of off-screen space nevertheless which is the uh, locked basement mm. science lab of the uh, patriarch of this family that sort of looms large throughout the film as a space that yeah could unlock uh, perhaps some some truths about you know these weirdos well yeah i mean even just going beyond the, the 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 bowels of this this place. I mean, so much of the the movie, especially for Gabriel, uh, particularly, uh, who's really the driving force, you know, uh, behind this this search, uh, you know, the the whole movie is about trying to gain access to things. Uh, you know, at first they, they have to get access to the Island of Orc. Then they have to try to get access to the house where they think their father is. And then even once they've sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> violently like beaten their way into the home, uh, there's the locked room where the father may be upstairs. Right. You know, there's so many rooms and spaces and locations that, you know, we're led to believe are going to have some great revelation behind it. And, and though there are revelations to your point, uh, it's, it's never exactly the kind of revelation our characters expect, nor that we as an audience can, can truly expect. I think it's funny too, how the off-screen space in Men and Chicken carries with it such a threat that you'll be locked up in a cage if you interact <laughs> with that off-screen space. And Jerry is inviting us to think about the off-screen space and play with it, mm -hmm. right? But also it feels sometimes, too, that if you don't do anything Jerry asks you uh, in his film, that he himself will lock you in a cage because <laughs> he's a very strict man. Yeah. I mean, in the case of Men and Chicken, right? I mean, that's also very cinematic though you know you present an audience with a locked door mm -hmm. we're gonna want to know what the fuck is behind it you know as these characters do yeah or even the idea of the cage is is brought up and you go like what's up with this cage stuff they yeah. keep talking about you know what kind of system was their dad running here yeah. and of course we 
you know, we get a little cage action. Oh, later, yeah. But it's mm-hmm. Chekhov's cage. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think both films have a really funny way of introducing the actual plot of the film and setting it in motion. So specifically in Men and Chickens, they get a a tape recorded from their father and they pop it on the TV. um, And this is the father's video message saying, well, if you're listening to this, I'm dead and I have news. I'm not your real father. Um, It's not even your real mother. You're both half brothers, right? He, He gives out the whole spiel of the film. While wearing no pants. Yeah, while wearing no pants in an amusing shot where the tripod he set up was in effective and the camera falls down so the only thing we see in the frame are his his bare legs in his undies <laughs> like right like socks like yeah. grandpa shit. <laughs> it's a very like sp- spooky little image that's also quite funny and then in the family jewels you have what is something that jerry does i think in at least half of his films where he has the actual plot of the film presented to the audience by seemingly like a board room of just like older white men or Some just suits. like old hollywood men yeah they just like very explicitly lay it out as if they're lawyers right or just businessmen with a document like this is the plot of the film now we're going to like surrender step back and you'll have to just parse it all out together with what jerry is sort of destabilizing you know um usually it's something like peter lorre or john carradine are the ones that are setting this in motion this one is just like two guys but it's funny that both films i think just an, an interesting connection is that they have like explicit here is what the plot will be here is our setting in motion um, a message to our characters so they can begin their quest searching for their new fathers mm-hmm. and scenes of like we're going out on the road to deal with this, you know, laid out plot. Like both films have that moment, you know, uh, these, yeah, the beginning of these, these search, these foolish searches, you know, (laughs) I guess, you know, thinking about all of these fools and this search that we go on. So a question I just have for both of you, or just like an open question is, do you have in both films, do you have a favorite Jerry or in men and chicken? Do you have a favorite of the brothers? Was there a particular fool? that made you laugh more than the others? Well, I'll say in the case of Family Jewels, like I, I like wrote down in my notes, like I want the, the Skylock and Matson spinoff. Yeah. I want the full, yeah. <laughs> I want the full feature. I mean, those Me two, their, their banter and, and certainly like his, his physical comedy. Joe, that was a brilliant idea of yours. Yes, I must agree. Uh, so you are. Just get uh. Yeah, well, yeah. I say, it's simply fantastic how your, your mind operates under yeah, so pressure. Yes, good, actually. The pool scene, as you mentioned, was probably my favorite, my favorite, like, you know, I, I don't even know if you want to call it like a sketch or whatever that, that he right. did. It has nothing really to do with the plot. It's, it's you know, other than the fact that the the pool the, the the game of pool was supposed to be a diversion to help them get access to like rescuing this little girl but instead Skylock just gets really wrapped up in the pool game and then <laughs> forgets about the girl altogether but yeah I, I think Skylock and Madsen were were um, my favorite uh, in the in Family Jewels. It's the perfect marriage of, you know, a British procedural, the all in good time, right, type of interjections that are ripe for making like delayed Jerry Lewis physical comedy last to just infinity, never arriving at the goal they set out for. It's the perfect recipe for a sketch. I think my favorite Jerry is uh, Uncle Julius, which is a riff on, uh, you know, the Nutty Professor, but this time he's a photographer who shoots like babes and glamour shots and is somehow 
you know, this famous photographer, even though he seems totally inept. Uh, and yeah, he's he is like a whirlwind on set. And like his set looks like a Godard film, you know, it it's like yeah. blue and red primary. Like even the lights have like blue and red color on them. But uh, I loved it because, yeah, he's he it's revealed that he's actually doing like two shoots at the same time. You know, he's got like this serial commercial going on and then he's got this couple that he's shooting and he keeps just absentmindedly like bouncing back and forth assaulting the people in his studio you know like uh and even the audience <laughs> at a certain point yes you know in a totally classic yeah jerry fourth wall breaking moment he starts changing filters on the lens he starts giving a like a lighting demonstration Tip your head closer to her, Matt. Just fine. Get that at stop. Should be about 7,000 foot candle with two leaks. That'll work out. Two diffuse, just not too hot. Oh, that is warm. <laughs> just a tip so that we see it's a hair ad. Would you put your arm to just drop this? That's it. Now put your arm to his and pose to the right to the camp. Oh, 1,600 feet is 9F63. Couldn't be. That's going to work out fine. Maybe a little hot, but they'll process it. And this is all happening as like a, a comedic set piece where he's like assaulting these actors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a really <laughs> remarkable scene of the film. One of my favorite images of the film is Jerry's face completely out of focus, nearly right up against the lens as he's adjusting the matte box. Yeah. Um, and his teeth are hanging out, his eyes are cross-eyed, and yeah, he's just rambling about F-stops. I can't think of any other film shot on like this type of soundstage with this you know paramount film stock it looks so beautiful that has images that are so radically blown out and overexposed because he does a gag for that where he's got the two figures who are being photographed and he turns on like an extremely bright light and they they almost become pure white like mm -hmm. they they almost disappear from the film because of how bright it is and that's something you see all the time and like amateur productions and digital filmmaking especially but to see two people completely blown out on like borderline vista vision paramount yeah. film stock it's really bizarre to they see they didn't let you do that back then no. you know like... <laughs> yeah, i felt like it was against the law you know yeah <laughs> i mean that sequence for me because i would say after skylock and madsen yeah that was that was my favorite jerry mm -hmm. but it was really like that sequence that i think it really clicked again for me. It like really reinforced to me why the new wave were such fans of this guy because, yeah. you know, I was, I was of course like thinking of the, the famous, you know, Godard, uh, you know, quote about, you know, Nicholas Ray is the cinema, that sort of thing. And in this moment I was thinking, it's like, no, Jerry Lewis is the cinema. Look what he did. Right. Look what he's doing. <laughs> I mean, it is total cinema, as you said, like he is in concert with the spaces inside the film and the spaces outside the film. There's this incredible synthesis going on and an awareness of the audience, an awareness of, of the fact that, that all of this is total artifice and total reality as Badiou would say, you know, and, and, and he in that moment 
You know, I, I think those are the moments for, for Jerry Lewis when it really does become like truly sublime. I think, you know, there's so many people who probably uh, know uh, uh, a parody of Jerry Lewis more than they know his actual work. You know, I think sure. he's been made fun of in so many places, you know. The Simpsons, as we sort of mentioned, uh, you know, Saturday Night Live. I mean, it, he's a very easy persona to, to I think, spoof or to caricature. Uh, but, you know, yeah, it's easy to caricature him. You know, the whole nice lady waving, you know. I mean, it's yeah. it's so <laughs> easy to, to make fun of that. And I think people find that aspect of of him and his his performances and the characters he would play is like very irritating. There's a lot of people that, you know, uh, mm-hmm. have no idea that there's 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 a method to that to that madness, that awkwardness, that that mm-hmm. irritating quality, you know, and that irritating uh, aspect to his certain characters he plays is again like directly addressing the audience you know he he wants on a certain level to irritate people that's part of the joke that's part of the idea that that human beings are irritating and jerry lewis certainly has a lot of contempt for people you know and that comes out you know it's 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 a very kind of like anti-humanist uh work i find but but in that regard you know what is it then? It is. It becomes mechanical. It becomes uh, technical. It becomes uh, incredibly, uh, you know, uh, intricate design to like his jokes and and what he's trying to to pull off. You know, again, we were mm-hmm. talking about the, the the people who've clearly like influenced him and you know the greats who had come before him and and a- as a result, again, this kind of like for me, total cinema in the new wave sense is is him sort of taking from all of these other people uh and and creating uh, an incredibly like detailed uh sort of like melange of all this different work of of all the things that made these filmmakers good but he's now like grabbed the best parts of all of them and put them all together in his own work you know it isn't just that he's you know influenced by Chaplin or or W.C. Fields or or Buster Keaton but he's sort of like taken what was great in their work and 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 again added to it you know it's not this sort Mm -hmm. of like binary approach uh but but again a very sort of like like multiplicitous approach to what he's doing and what he's what he's utilizing you know like Keaton was a great technical filmmaker but Keaton was like emotionless you know, Chaplin was emotional to the point of 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 sentimentality, and 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 Lewis Harry's has that. Not above that. No, yeah. absolutely. I mean, you know, he he rings all those bells, and then you know, put puts it all together in in something that also like, uh, yeah, like grabs the audience by its throat and slaps it around. Totally. <laughs> You know, I feel like uh, Andy and I might have the the same favorite fool from Men and Chicken, Ryan. I'm just guessing, but uh, my favorite fool uh, from from that film is, of course, Yosef. Oh yeah, mine too. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah, the large (laughs) one who uh, is also the sort of philosopher uh, of the family, or at least the the country philosopher of the family. Uh, And he he really, you know, uh, he really moved me. I you know I ended up uh, being a big fan of him and his jogs with his like Walkman as well. (laughs) Yeah. I think one of the funniest chunks of the film is when Gabriel tries to restructure the way all of these fools 
think about the world and think about behavior and how it means to be a proper person. Yeah. Morality. <laughs> yeah. He, he's witnessing them destabilizing the world and their creation of a world. So he's trying to then bring them back into some form of structure, right? And that process is by introducing the Bible, <laughs> not even literally as a religious text. He's not even trying to convert them to Christianity. He wants it to be a behavior manual. And Yosef, of course, his reaction is very funny when the Bible is introduced and why he even pitches to include it for their bedtime stories, because that's another really nice touch in the film is all the brothers like snuggle up for bedtime stories in the evening. <laughs> Which are just like nonfiction yeah. uh, manuals. Yeah, there's all these just like books on biology that, that are laying <laughs> yeah. around, you know, and they, they make a point that Avilio, their father, like said only nonfiction in the house or whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah. But then so Yosef, uh, who normally leads those bedtime story sessions, he is receptive to the Bible and he wants to use it because he says, well, this is the foundation of Western thought. There is so much to be gleamed from this text. And eventually once it becomes a part of their, you know, regular rotation in the bedtime sequence and they are having like book groups about the Bible, there's that one uh, incredibly funny bit where Yosef is referring to the story of Abraham and uh, his literalization of it is that Abraham is hearing voices that are telling him because of his schizophrenia and he's hallucinating. <laughs> and a lack of psychotropic drugs that he should be on <laughs> yeah. or whatever. And then after like going on and on about all of that, uh, Gabriel mentions like, hold on, like, let's just talk about what's literally happening in the text before we get to our interpretation. And Yosef's response to that is, I haven't even gotten to my interpretation yet. (laughs) (laughs) The science minded man reading the Bible very literally. Yeah. For the first time at like age (laughs) 35, you know? Yeah. Yosef is, is, is great. You know, like he's the one that you most like, I would think feel, would feel comfortable, like giving a big hug to, you know, he certainly seems to be the one that, that is uh, the least hot headed as well of the group. The, you know, maybe Gregor too. Gregor's kind of a sweetheart, but, but yeah, Yosef is also the 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 keeper of the cheese, the 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 one who's most concerned about the cheese at all hours, you know, and making sure that the cheese is locked up, which of course we will uh, understand a little bit more <laughs> later, perhaps why right. uh, Joseph is so uh, so thoughtful of the cheese at all hours of the day, but. I really like when Gabriel reveals that he himself was an author and that he wrote a philosophical book about humanity's searches for answers and the meaning of life and the lengths we all go to in that quest. And Franz, who is, you know, the rough and tough one of the family, the one who's sort of leading them after the, the father um, has sort of become bedridden. Franz's reaction to, to such a book is, well, you should just write a book about cheese. <laughs> like yeah. your, your efforts are misguided and wasted. There's no reason to write a book about that. Yeah. As, as like, uh, you know, Gabriel is trying to connect with him, you know, and and that's an important point about Gabriel in this scene, because I think when you watch this movie, uh, you know, and especially to our topic, this idea of fools, uh, you know, it, it's easy to again go like, well, there's 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 four fools and then there's Gabriel and Gabriel's the only sane one in the group. But I think it's really in this scene that in in, you know, the way that's that's sort of true for Gabriel revealed that he himself is also a fool, you know, he's a, he's a fool from academia. He's a fool from, from, you know, the world of, of 
quote, great thinkers or as, right. as, you know, Mads, Elias likes to say, you know, just guys who got lucky or whatever, you know, like mm-hmm. they have that, that wonderful conversation in the car where Elias Mads Mickelson just keeps talking about how, you know, like Darwin's a fool. Darwin's a moron. He got lucky. He just lucked into it. Yeah. Einstein lucked into it. Yeah. And, and then he points out too, like, yeah, in 1921, the lamest year for physics, like, <laughs> You know, like, but, but like Gabriel's also a fool, you know, he's sitting there in a very kind of like pompous way. Like, well, you know, I wrote books. He at first says books and then says one book. Right. So at first he's sort of implying that he's written quite a bit. And then we discover he's only written one book and it's about, you know, as he says, man's search for meaning. And he starts to sort of like interrogate Franz, you know, like, and this is a very important subject, isn't it? And Franz is like, no. Like, I don't give a shit about that. He says, uh, that doesn't seem very well contemplated. (laughs) Right, you know? Because Gabriel doesn't have any answers. So it's like you wasted all this time in your life writing a book about answers and you have none. Here you are sitting in this fucking house with all of us looking for answers, you stupid fool, like you asshole. You're just like us. It's just that you went to college. So, so yeah, they're all kind of fools in their own way. I mean, obviously like Mads Mikkelsen, I think is the, is, is like incredible in this movie. And I think this film, you know, above all the other ones that I've seen in him is just such a great uh, platform for his comedic sensibilities, you know, and maybe it is, of course, mm-hmm. also, yes, a very sort of Scandinavian approach to humor. It's very absurd. It's very dark. It's very cringe at times. But, but I mean, he is just to me, every fucking moment Mads is on screen, I am just transfixed. There's so much that he does with his eyes, with his facial expressions. There's so much character work going on that again, you know, as you pointed out, Marsha, it isn't also just about us laughing and making fun of these people, but at times also feeling bad for them, like feeling emotionally connected to, to their pain as absurd as it might be. Like there is still this, this kernel of, of naturalism, of realism that sort of cuts through all of the, the nasty gross, pitch black comedy moments in the film. Yeah, I mean, it's a tragic movie, you know, like ultimately. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. I think Mads' performance is is quite heroic. I mean, as we mentioned, when we're introduced to him, he's on a date with a woman in a wheelchair who is a psychiatrist, and it's clear that he's arranged this date just so he can unload some perverse dreams he has about his brother being an animal that he eventually rapes. And then he just goes to the the bathroom and jerks off because he was in such close uh, proximity to a woman, which is something that recurs throughout the film. Mads Mikkelsen, if he's near a woman feels compulsive and, you know, thankfully doesn't act on it in front of them. He finds a private space where he can take care of his needs. Even if that means just pulling over to the side of the road at a certain point. <laughs> yes, absolutely, yeah. But it, it is presented initially as one of the most unlikable characters you could probably ever imagine spending, you know, an hour and 44 minutes with in a film. But Mads's performance somehow brings all of this humanism to it that by the end, when there are scenes 
when people are unloading on Mads or, you know, accosting him. And, you know, there's collisions between brothers, of course, and some hurtful and uh, hateful words are shared amongst them. You actually feel bad for Elias, Mads' character, right? And I think that happens through his performance. Yeah. It's really important to sort of stress something particular about his character that that we've kind of already introduced you know this this idea of jerking off because it isn't just that it's it's also that he just seems to be totally driven by his like libido uh, almost all of his interactions are are like sexualized in some way like this dude has fucking on the brain and specific specifically like an idea of like prolific fucking when they like even arrive at this like abandoned island basically where there's only like 42 people uh, like inhabiting it uh he like looks around at the town and and his his initial reaction is like what a lousy place to live there's no one here to sleep with you know like that's how he right. he defines so many of his his um yeah his his like interactions with people it's just basically like can i fuck them will i fuck them you know and and of course in his mind He's always going to, you know, there, the, 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 the big like falling out that, that eventually happens with his brother is initially like teased by, by the fact that, you know, Gabriel, uh, had another relationship fall apart. And Elias says to him, like, all your relationships fall apart because your girls all have secret crushes on me, <laughs> you know? And then, and then they try to come between us and then they become so obsessed with me and they can't have me that, that naturally they leave, you know? So, so everything for him is, is like redirected to his sense of being this kind of like, you know, uh, like Johnny Thunderfuck alpha, Stud, yeah, know. alpha Chad, <laughs> like sex God. But as we see, like, He's got he's, no game. He's got no game, yeah. No. Just neuroses, you know? Yeah. I almost wonder if there's something to that in Jerry's film as well, or like maybe just baked into the idea of certain slapstick physical comedy that it's sort of based on, you know, the spurts and stutters of like a, a hypersexualized person sort of like acting out on urges, right? Like so much of Jerry's comedy is like aggressive and it feels like he's suddenly filled with an urge that he needs to act on and then it it happens and there's this momentary release and i mean i was even thinking about when we meet uncle julius the photographer and we learn that he photographs a bunch of models there's an amusing shot where it's a uh, a long dolly tracking shot of the wall that has all of these photographs of beautiful women and fancy uh fashion outfits right and there's like swelling paramount or orchestral music playing and it ends with willard at the far right of this tracking shot who is almost drooling at the sight of all of these women he's like in reverie yeah and i was imagining right if that was Mads Mikkelsen's character. Yeah, he'd just go in the bathroom and fucking right. tug one out. He'd be gone, dude, yeah. By the time that tracking shot got to, you know, the, the second mark, it would be over, you Yeah, know? absolutely. But I think that, right, like these fools, that's something maybe they all do have in common. I mean, all the brothers in Men and Chicken are very horny. They're all looking for girls, explicitly so. They're like, how can we get girls here? 
Yeah, well, as as Gabriel tells them, uh, step one is going to be getting the decaying body of our father out of this house. And one of them even says, yeah, what chicks are going to want to come over here if, if they know we got a corpse in the house? You know, and, and Mads, of course, replies, well, some girls will, you know, some girls will. <laughs> I mean, and that's sort of the pitch, you know, from Gabriel and Elias to a certain extent to the brothers is like, look, you got to clean up your act. Because then you will get chicks, you know, like that's sort of like what even spurs them to try and better themselves, right? Are these, yes, instinctual urges, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also, there's a weird connection between both of these films that I don't even know how to make meaning of them, but it was something that I kept thinking about. And that's, you know, the girls that these fools are eventually able to have interest in them in any sort of romantic way are like elderly women, right? In both films, because in Men and Chicken, when they sort of go out on the town to get girls, they end up at a nursing home and the older women sort of pick which fool they want and they kind of move on into their quarters in their own rooms and, you know, who knows what goes on in there. <laughs> and then conversely in, um, or I guess like related in this way, there's in the family jewels, the only women that show any attraction to the variety of fools that Jerry has on display are a gaggle of old women on their way to Chicago for a motorcycle convention of some sort. And they're the ones that see Jerry as the pilot. This is the pilot uncle. And they are explicitly, at least one of them, cannot stop mentioning how cute Jerry is and how adorable. (laughs) And she likes touching him. And she's, you know, she's quite attracted to this Jerry. And, you know, I guess, you know, to just like sort of cap this off, I, I don't know what this means, but I was sort of transfixed by this fact, and it won't leave my brain, that like old women like these fools in both of these films. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly what it means either. I, w- <laughs> I would say, I, I think in the case of Men and Chicken, it's just to simply point out, like, they don't have a lot of choice. Uh, even You know, the youngest woman that, that they seem to even really engage with um, aside from a worker at the at the nursing home who's you know into Joseph our uh, our favorite, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know all the other women are at least like in their middle age to to on the low end and and you know clearly the women in the nursing home are on the very like high end and, and perhaps right. in their eighties who knows but I think in that case you know it's just a, in in men and chicken to say like. You know, these guys will will do anything. They'll go. They'll go right. for for anything. Whatever's around. They they're not too, they're not too picky. <laughs> and how could they be? And the old ladies in you know Family Jewels are are similarly distressed because they missed their they missed their flight. You know, and uh, they are. You know, they they see because you know Captain Eddie, this character, uh, he's a total joke. Everyone at the airport is making fun of him. He's got this old Ford tri-motor and his own personal airline that in three years has never had any takers, no passengers, you know? Uh, And yeah, it's just like this old-ass plane that, like, you're not even sure works. Yeah, just, like, made of aluminum. And these old (laughs) old ladies are, like, you know, so desperate. They're like, oh, okay, but then they're, like, totally bewitched by him. Women love a man in a uniform. Yeah, and multiple (laughs) uniforms as he, you know, does costume changes as he's prepping the plane, of course. But the interior of the plane is also, like, decorated 
decorated like an old lady's living room. Yeah, you know? wicker chairs with floral cushions. Yeah, that was amazing too. The whole like design inside that that airplane. Like I just was like, I mean, again, you know, you talk about this, how colorful these these Jerry Lewis movies can be at this time, and I just was like, my God, you know, it's again perspective. It's the last mm-hmm. thing you would have expected inside that aircraft, you know, for it to look like your your grandmother's living room. Absolutely. But there it was for some reason, you know. Yeah. Well, it's funny, right? You know, I was asking you both about your favorite Jerry in the film, and I, I would have to say that it the, the airplane sequence is my favorite Jerry um, in The Family Jewels. The way he laughs. Will it fly? Will she fly? <laughs> uh, kind of. Is just like so infectious and bizarre to me that like I just can't help laughing every time he does his, his goofy laugh. <laughs> and it also, this sequence features one of my favorite sort of, you know, destabilizing the world gags in the film where once the plane eventually does take off and there's a series of mishaps that, you know, struggle to get the thing in the air. At one point, Jerry falls out of the plane and has to chase it around the runway in order to get back in and take off. But when he does take off, he offers, you know, in-flight entertainment. Sustenance starring Ann Baxter. <laughs> a totally like yeah. fake Seinfeld movie, dude. I was cracking up. But it, and it's amazing too, right? It's like a kind of a Pee Wee's Playhouse type rig he has set up where he pulls a lever and then the cloth projection screen falls from the ceiling. And then there is a 16 millimeter projector that pops out of the wall. And it's very mechanical and like sets up to, to begin the projection. And... In a very inspired moment, while these old women have their headphones on and they're watching this film being projected inside of this rinky-dink airplane, the scene on screen in Sustenance starring Ann Baxter is like a waiter trying to like tend to this big banquet table that everyone's sitting at. And Jerry encounters a lot of turbulence in the air and the plane starts tilting back and forth. And as the plane is tilting, the film that's being projected is reacting to the stabilization of the airplane. So if Jerry falls far to the right, so does the film, causing the the waiter to collapse or drop all of the food. So it's like Jerry's reality is actually affecting the projected film for these old women. It's such an inspired bit. I love it. And I, and I, you look, I enjoyed the Eddie sequence, but it is punishingly long you know that's why i yeah i know you do i know (laughs) you do i just want to clear the air on that because it's like (laughs) i think there's some really good stuff in there but you know that really is pushing this like yeah this durational quality of jerry and he just he just doesn't care about the plot of this film at all i mean not not even close and i think a, a good thing uh, to think about is in like the the Fujiwara book on Jerry Lewis. He talks about how he constructs uh, building blocks and then he sort of like fits all these blocks together. And that's maybe that's a way of calling it sketch like. But uh, this is a huge fucking block, you know, and it's got building gags, gag after gag, contraptions, flying. I mean, it's the centerpiece of the film. It is like the longest and it's like in the middle of the film basically you know yeah i almost wonder if part of it was because they had that plane which i guess was a real plane and there were only a couple of them made and they they spent the money to have it and to get it up in the air so maybe they felt like 
Yeah. They just had to have. I mean, there's aerial footage, dude. There's aerial footage. There's money on the screen in that sequence, you know. Oh, yeah. But Jerry's very much one of those filmmakers where he has a gag. It's funny. It goes on so long that it's no longer funny. Then it keeps going, and it's even funnier because it's kept going. And then it's that cycle, repeated to infinity almost, especially with this this airplane scene. I ended up with the airplane scene thinking it was like transcendent in how funny it was because of how long it goes yeah. on. But I am like totally open to the argument that it is like kind of a disaster. <laughs> yeah, again, that's another one of those moments where I I, I think of his his uh, constant sort of provocation of the audience, that that assault yes. on the audience. But I, I, you know, I, I think the thing with somebody like Jerry Lewis again, in a in a way that's very reminiscent of like how Chaplin would work. You know, they're they're both perfectionists, and uh, they're both like driven. I think as as artists by their impulses, by you know what what strikes them as beautiful, funny, touching, creative in that moment, and uh, in a way for for like both of these filmmakers, it's like at times it can, uh, be very oppressive. Uh, and yet like their, their grace, their, their, what seems to be a sort of like effortless approach and performance is able to sort of like transcend that a little bit to overcome that because, you know, just in the moment that you'll sit there and be like, boy, he's really been going for a while on this. He will suddenly, you know, do something. There'll be a flourish of some kind that makes you just go, wow, he really just did that too. Like that's, that's pretty good, you know? Uh, so I think it's like, yeah, I, I see where you're coming from Ryan in that sense that, you know, it, it can go on so long that, that it, it both drags and impresses us, you know, at the same time. But I guess sometimes I'm just like, you know, I'm like enough, come on, man, you know, like (laughs) let's, let's get on. (laughs) Well, you have to remember, like, there's nothing I find funnier in the world than like an on cinema Oscar special, which is sort of exactly that just just dragging something on for over three hours to the point where you don't even know what's real anymore. Yeah. That always impresses me. So something that, uh, uh, again, in our like conversation and and these films that we that we've looked at this week and just you know where we've been going in terms of how we've been discussing them made me realize something here that the uh, you know I'm a, I'm a sort of like amateur uh, tarot guy. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I've been getting over the last couple of years a little bit more into, into, uh, you know, reading tarot and, and exploring tarot and, uh, something that's very important as you start to, you know, research tarot and, and the cards, the major arcana, the minor arcana, uh, is that the, the very first card in the tarot deck, and some would say the most important card in the entire deck is the fool. And that's how the, the, the tarot deck begins with the fool. And really like the, the entire journey of the tarot deck is about a fool beginning a journey, a, a journey of discovery, a journey, a quest for, for meaning, for answers of, of some kind. And I think it's, it's, uh, we see it in, in sort of both films, but you know, really in in men and chicken like it really started to click with me the more and more i thought about that because you know that's really uh gabriel's specific like focus you know as we discussed you know he wrote a whole book on it but but yes i mean like it's it's very funny in the film because you know as they get introduced into this world like elias 
very quickly just sort of like adapts, just adapts, like gets right on, yeah. on you know, the, the page with his brothers, like really just immediately like fits in and, and feels like, you know, he's been living here all along, just, just buys into their, their rituals, their rules, their system, their order, their, their <laughs> violence. In fact, that's how they even get entrance. You know, Gabriel first approaches the house and tells Elias to like hang back. Cause you know, Elias is a bit of a hothead. We we learn very quickly. Don't want to make a bad impression. Right. Yeah. And, and Gabriel's like, I'm gonna just gonna go talk to them and, and reason with them, you know, that that we should get entrance into this home. And and Gabriel gets just, you know, physically assaulted uh right out right off the gate. But but then he has to send Elias back. And the second time, it's like Elias, he says, speaks their language. And Elias like beats the shit out of all of them with like a, a rolling pin that they took from some house in the in the town. And that impresses the brothers. Yes. That's what gets them entry is that Elias was able to speak their language more so than Gabriel. And so, yes, Elias, like, you know, as far as he's concerned, like he's in the house now and and this is pretty cool. And, and they got a badminton court and that's great, you know, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he's playing badminton with the brothers. But it's Gabriel who's like, don't forget why we came here. We came here for answers. And, and it's, it's Gabriel that's really like driving the idea to, to, to find his father. And he does eventually in this like locked room that they've been told is, is off limits, uh, in the middle of the night, break into this room to discover, as I mentioned earlier, that, that the father is, is dead and, and not just recently dead, but long dead. I mean, this is a, a stinky decaying corpse in yeah nearly mummified in the bed yes yes and and it then is also kind of revealed that the brothers knew that Evilio had died some time ago but but for their own weird reasons uh decided to just leave him where where he was but that isn't enough for Gabriel you know Gabriel has to keep driving he really wants to find his answer and what that answer is i mean it, it it seems like what he's most concerned about is like his mother you know like okay how how is it that we're all related and and i i just need to understand my genesis the 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 thing that like set me off into this world and so he keeps digging like deeper and deeper and deeper but also right try and like you know become the leader or at least become like this quote like civilizing force uh in these guys life because again like this whole thing is musing on you know notions of nature and nurture and socialization and uh obviously you know with the three brothers being like yeah borderline you know like caged animals by their tyrannical yeah. science uh, father yeah they're or like feral <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> with each of the brothers you know and maybe through gabriel's influence like they all now discover something about themselves that that might require a little bit more introspection, a little bit more thought. And Gabriel is definitely like the force that really pushes everyone, you know, from his initial encounter with Franz, where Franz like, I never ask those questions. Why the fuck would I ask that? Like, I, I like cheese or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it's 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 slowly throughout all the slapstick violence and uh, biting, biting and, you know, attempts to <laughs> seduce older women that, that eventually the, the other brothers all kind of come around to their own 
desire to know a little bit more perhaps about themselves or just, you know, the world, the world, their father, their, their connections, you know, for, for Mads, for Elias, uh, things really start to become an issue for him when he discovers the, the family's prize breeding bull, the prize stud bull. Isaac. Isaac. Uh, I think it's like Isaac the fourth or something like that. It's like a, there's like a Roman numeral as well. It's like Isaac the third or something. But when, when Elias sees this, this just stud bull, I mean, he is just like rocked to his core. And again, like in a way that from Mads, like his performance and, and again, it, a purely like visual sense at first, like uh, we see this like cataclysmic moment for him and not just like this, this just weird feeling that he can't put his finger on this, this, this seething burning uh, jealousy inside him when he discovers that this bull, this bull semen has been used to perhaps impregnate 43,000 <laughs> heifers around Europe. And he, he has this yeah. very like childlike, sense of you know like uh yeah like like jealousy and 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 uh he even says like oh yeah really you think so but you can tell that he's very upset by this he feels threatened by this bull's sexual prowess and that is when things really start to go off the rails for his character the movie that this film most frequently reminded me of is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two. Oh yeah, oh. and I think it. I mean, it obviously has a lot in common with the first one, right? Where there's the. I mean, I guess this is present in the second, but right, we have the father who's dead, nearly mummified. They're treating him as if he's still like a member of the family, right? I mean, I guess in, <laughs> I'm like reflecting on all of this. In Texas Chainsaw, the old man is sort of alive, uh, but really yeah. like technically dead. <laughs> he's the best killer <laughs> no. of them all, though. Right? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, those dinner scenes, the way that they bicker about really small things, like that's the comedy that feels very present in Texas Chainsaw 2, where they lean really heavily into like the the, the the father making all that chili out of people and attending different chili cook-offs, right, with his like chili full of human bodies and thinking about the bull and the jealousy that they feel over that. It is like this animalistic pain that these fools feel very much related to how the family dynamic works in Texas Chainsaw 2, I thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, like, it, it does feel in, in in that sense that it's it's sort of like, you know, uh, like almost like Beckett meets the Texas Chainsaw Massacre a little bit, totally. you know, you have that, yeah. that haunting existentialist, like dread that, that, uh, affects all these characters. And then, yeah, the, the grotesque space and weird rituals and the violence. I mean, you have to like recognize that this is a pretty violent movie. There's a lot of violence. And even though it's, you know, meant to be played as like comedy and slapstick, there's blood. I mean, people are getting fucked up like and and that 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 weird uh edge of of you know physical uh danger like is is very yeah. clearly i think something that was yeah like you know inspired by things like texas chainsaw massacre like some people have kind of even described this as as a sort of like horror movie on a certain level and and it does drift into that territory at several points. I mean, there's also the, the the gradual discovery by Gabriel of the fact that all the chickens wandering around, uh, if you look at them closely, they have strange 
defects. There's a, a, a hybridization he starts to become aware of. We see like a chicken with a little deformed human arm growing out of it. At a certain point, they mm-hmm. see, uh, you know... A, a cow a, chicken. Yeah, a chicken with hooves, with cow's hooves, and, and eventually a stork with human feet. So there is, you know, again, even this, this weird, like... Um, horror element that starts to come into play like body horror that that uh, also kind of like pervades this film and it's interesting because you get like at least i did like you know you get sort of accustomed to their worlds you know and and as you're watching it and gabriel's gro- going through this process of like trying to quote civilize the family and you start to go like yeah these guys just need to like you know hang out with some people yeah. however <laughs> however then right we learn like what happened with franz at his previous job at the kindergarten where he attacked a four-year-old with uh, cheese i believe oh, no, it was no. Stuff, stuffed fox I'm sorry you're right <laughs> It was a stuffed fox, yes, exactly. And and there's this, yeah, this just, like, brutal moment, you know, where they, they try to, like, go and get Franz's job back. And, uh, you know, Gabriel has, like, split with everyone at this point, so emotions are very high. And, and we learn, yeah, like... <laughs> Franz attacked this kid with a stuffed fox and now is, like, asking for his job back, except with Gabriel gone, it's, like, Elias just threatening this poor woman in this island of 70 people and their kindergarten of two kids, and they're like, we can't let you be around people. (laughs) We can't let you be around children. Dude, that whole sequence of when, like, Gabriel is finally like, man, fuck all of you, and Elias, like, jumps up to be like, all right, I'm the new patriarch, and, and leads them out on their, like, big day on the town to to yes get Franz's job back and then as we mentioned like laid, take them yeah. all to get laid just like how they're all dressed you know like Elias has this like white suit Mads Mikkelsen's wearing like this this white suit and Franz is wearing a a full tuxedo with like tails you know and they go in to try to get his job back at the kindergarten I mean that whole day and that whole sequence is is just unbelievable like i couldn't even like write down all the funny lines because like every single thing that's being said i was just cracking up as elias is trying to sort of like convince this woman to take back uh franz the the very violent impulsive franz Du får til at lyde som om hele Mexico City er ramt af panik. Børn, de er altså bange for så mange ting. Der findes jo børn derude, som er bange for trøjknapper. Men derfor kan vi jo ikke alle sammen løbe rundt i ponsjur. Kan vi det? Hvad? Nej, altså Karl og Frans, de har haft en lille konflikt. Men det burde de alle til at kunne rumme i en integreret institution som Vildanden. Så prøv, prøv lige at løbe op til jeres navn. Og husk på, at, at for den døve, der er de dansende vanvittige. Det tror jeg nok lige, du har glemt. Hvad, Susan? Hvad? Nej, nu synes jeg alle talt, vi skal lade fornuften råde her. Så siger vi, Frans, han kommer i morgen tidlig, It's insane, too, because it's another funny link between the films, right? Franz, the absolute last person you would ever want working at a kindergarten. And I think that that's something Jerry plays with a lot, too, is like, which jobs are the last jobs you would want Jerry managing, right? And I think 
in this film, that sequence, I mean, amongst many, though, is the, the gas station sequence, oh, right? God. You yeah. never want you never want Jerry working a gas station by himself. You, you can only imagine the chaos that ensues. Um, and I obviously couldn't help but think about, you know, <laughs> Jerry working with the gas pump girls. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and how even these, like, you know, totally high gas pump girls and their, their boyfriends actually run, like, a pretty tight ship at the gas station. Like, yeah, Jerry just, like, couldn't even hold a can handle to um what they were able to accomplish he just destroys cars d- destroys people's days mass chaos yes sir young man i think it's about time i change my oil i think you could stand a complete physical oh, oh no I, I mean my car oh oh yeah well i was fooling yes fine well i'll uh uh, change the oil. I'll take it in on a rack and change it for you. Oh, fine. And and you be very, very careful of this car, young man. I've never put a scratch on it. And there better not be one when I get back, either. Oh, no. I'll take very good care of everything. Ah, oh, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome, I'm sure. I'll take... Don't worry about it. You know, uh, there was a, a piece that I, I read years ago uh, that was sort of exploring uh, Bergson's book. Bergson wrote a whole book on the comic. Uh, and, and I'm sure you can imagine it's a very unfunny journey into the subject of what's funny and, and how things are funny to us. You know, this, <laughs> right. this very dense philosopher explaining like jokes uh, to all of us. But there was this really great section where uh, there's a discussion about like, the two like predominant figures in in comedy there are those to whom the world brings chaos you know there are those figures who are are fine but that we live in a very chaotic world and it's the world that 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 thrusts chaos into their life you know and that they'd be fine alone if it were not for the world you know i think of of wc fields so many of his his characters are like that a guy that just wants to sit on his porch by himself and yet whether it's his family or you know his his customers at his barbershop or whatever like they're they're bringing chaos into his into his existence larry david is another guy that i think is a great representation of that you know larry david just wants to sit and watch fucking tv but it's the fact that the world is filled with all these very chaotic agents who are just like fucking up his order and his systems. But then on the other hand, you have those who are chaotic, you know, those comedic figures who are chaotic and bring disorder to another otherwise ordered world. And I think both of these films are a very good representation of that. You know, that's, that's Jerry Lewis, you know, that, that gas station was fine until that that poor man yeah, asked him to mine to go the, to the store bank, you know? for five yeah. fucking Who minutes. Is my, who's mining the store? Fucking Willard, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that like everywhere these people go, they, they just like kick up a dust cloud of destruction and violence, right. you know? This kindergarten would have been fine. That lady working her job there was fine. And then fucking, here comes Elias in a white suit and this guy Franz in a tuxedo and like, God damn it, you know? Now she's in the hospital. So I think both of these films like are really good showcases for that. And again, I, I think in the case of somebody like, you know, Anders Thomas Jensen making this film in 2015, like he's very well aware of that lineage, you know, like the comparisons sure. that have been made this film, you know, between this film and others, you know, people have, have said, I think even in the promotional materials that it's, you know, it's like the three stooges meets Island of Dr. Moreau. I think I saw on like the poster for the movie and like, yeah, 
I mean, Anders Thomas Jensen is clearly riffing on people like Jerry Lewis, on Laurel and Hardy, on the Three Stooges, on the Marx Brothers. These just these forces of 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 like anarchy in an otherwise like ordered, sensible world. Mm-hmm. These films are both then in their own ways, like and and the the figures inside them great like Deleuzian heroes of becoming you know because for Deleuze like the becoming is is ultimately showcased by an act of creativity you know a creative idea something that can kind of come out of that dismantling that decoupling of of false binaries or or concepts that are are clearly well established in this world that you know this is mm-hmm. what a gas station is like and this is how a gas station should operate you know and and this is how you play pool or or this is how you seduce women or this is how you get a job you know this is how you make sense of your identity like it's this 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 complete deterritorialization of 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 what we understand being itself to sort of look like that that you know in in our society in the case of like jerry it's like to be a to be a productive functioning member of this world you know and to to not ruffle feathers and to to fit in with all of these other uh people these these other sort of like archetypes and and that's certainly like what also happens in men and chicken but on a on a on a much more uh perhaps like molecular or genetic level we will discover <laughs> the very idea of of a human being you know because their 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 discovery doesn't just end with the 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 finding of the father's corpse but ultimately into this basement, into his laboratory. And though we've already had the seeds planted that there's been something strange going on with the the hybrid chickens and the hybrid birds uh, running around everywhere, uh, Gabriel horrifically eventually discovers like their 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 genesis is a, a very scary scene it is a very scary scene i don't i don't really want to go into it in detail because i think it's 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 such a part of of anybody who watches this film it's like it's it's part of that journey that you have to take as well you know and it is yeah it's the punchline of the cosmic joke going on as well and and again it's a, a tragic cosmic joke you know it's not yeah. uh necessarily a, a funny one uh but it, it it is you know in that black humor uh, way that the film is is going for you know yeah because even after the the sort of shocking discoveries of the basement the film ultimately ends on a kind of like humanistic and sentimental tone you know not unlike jerry who ends on the most sentimental tone you know absolutely um, yeah you know i'm i'm fine not revealing the ending of um uh, men and chicken, but I we can definitely spoil uh, the family jewels. You know the grand finale, like the council of the uncles. <laughs> yeah. Hold on, because before we get to the boardroom, we have to talk about when everything converges but doesn't. Uh, because oh, sure. <laughs> I, I found the the quote climax yeah. to family jewels to be 
The deterritorialization of a climax. I, I, yes, dude. I, I mean, mean honestly, like dismantles just the he dismantles the I, the very idea of a climax in this film because sure. at a certain moment, uh, Donna has been kidnapped by her uncle Bugsy, long presumed dead, who's like the famous gangster from back in the day, and he's a Jerry parody of a gangster figure, right? Uh, and at a certain point, she's been kidnapped, and Willard summons all the uncles. To help rescue her. I wrote down calling all uncles. Yeah, there's like a there's like an Avengers assemble moment in this movie. <laughs> That's true. But what yeah. unfolds is the most like counterintuitive kind of like way to, to climax your film in a brilliant way, right? So we already talked about Skylock, the sort of like Holmes uh, caricature that Jerry's doing here, gets lost in a game of billiards. Uh, just like one floor below where Donna's being held at that. Uh, and he's totally distracted. He loses the plot entirely. And then, of course, Willard himself is on his way to go rescue Donna, and he gets caught up in a parade. Well, but even before that, like, he he calls, you know, <laughs> calling all uncles, calling all uncles. Only we, with our combined uncle powers, like like Voltron, like of uncles, <laughs> like only we can can save this girl. He then just, like, just sits back and is like, they'll take care of it. And he's just like pacing. There's that long yeah. gag where he's just pacing back and forth, hoping that all the uncles are going to save her. And it's, you know, and again, like this cartoonish Jerry Lewis way, like every time we cut back to him, he's worn a deeper and deeper path in the grass, you know, that he's been walking to the point where he's like, yeah, pacing in like a trench, you know, that and smoking, just smoking, smoking, smoking. But yeah, like he calls all uncles and then like, it's like the captain's like, I'm on my way in his plane, you know, the, 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 the sea captain's like, I'm coming in his little like ferry boat or whatever. They like all are like, <laughs> let's go. And then no one fucking shows up no. and he no is just sitting around. Yeah. Like just pacing back and forth while Skylock is just playing fucking pool. Like no one actually shows up for this little girl. Yep. And then Willard tries to intervene, and he gets caught up in a parade, and uh, his solution is to get out of his car, uh, knock out the sort of, like, leader of this little, like, marine marching unit, yeah. uh, dress up, and then start barking orders to the parade marchers, which, of course, turns into, like... Busby Berkeley number. Yeah, just, like... Again, the complete disorder of the universe by Jerry Lewis, like intervening in this parade and just destroying it in an artistic and creative way. Yeah, just creating you know? shapes of humans. Like. <laughs> yeah, all through commands that are completely incoherent. They're just like the approximation of what a, a military parade general would be yelling to keep everyone in order. Jerry's words have no literal meaning. They're just signifying meaning. So then as a result, all of these people are just creating, yeah, total chaos, crossing paths, but they're still 
responding to what he's saying which is like another odd touch like as if they are interpreting it um even if it like the design is perplexing becoming parade (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) and then he then he takes it even a step further by reversing the audio so which is like a a horrifying sound is jerry's just like screaming in reverse um yeah as (laughs) all the soldiers march in reverse then yeah and then he also slips in like a weird joke about politicians as well yeah. because he gets on this there's a there's like a, a truck driving around advertising a politician and I loved the like recorded Abner theft he's never stolen anything while in office yeah and then I think it just says like <laughs> just give me a chance like <laughs> some guy named Abner theft <laughs> who points out that he hasn't stolen anything <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, somehow in this chaos, Jerry Willard, the Willard Jerry, is able to somehow organize all of these, you know, marching soldiers to aim their weapons exactly at the window that Bugsby is hiding out in. And they catch him. Yeah. Which again, like in that dramatic moment was just uh, the the little girl and, and uh, you know, this this like Frankenstein's monster like gangster just playing hopscotch. <laughs> I mean, like what the... <laughs> Trying to teach her math. That's like another really inspired gag when he's reading her like math problems because like as a form of education and he's like, no, repeat after me. And then so she does, but she's just pantomiming a recording of Jerry's voice oh, and yeah. hearing Jerry's gang voice coming out of the mouth of a little girl is another like so extremely funny and yeah deeply unsettling because <laughs> i want you to be smart if you want to make a heist you got to know everything about sky and air and numbers and things so i'm gonna just read it to you once more see if you can remember it five sevens is 35 10 fours is 40 uh 15 twos is 30 and the witch's ending is 105. All right, now, try it. Five sevens is 35. Ten fours is 40. Uh, 15 twos is 30. And the witch's ending is 105. We then get the 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 bookend to the whole story. We're back in the boardroom. We've got the, the exactly the the council of uncles, the 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 commission. The new the new daddy commission has been convened. <laughs> the new daddy commission. Yeah, it's a film full of disorder and chaos. And in order to like wrap up this plot, we need to be back in a controlled environment where there is order and everyone is equally sat, you know, amongst like a like a round table in front of this uh, in front of Donna and. She She's making her decision. And it's a really amusing tracking shot and extremely sentimental in an odd way where she's talking about all of the virtues she finds in each subsequent uncle. Um, Total disconnect from everything that happened. (laughs) Right. But it's also kind of amazing because... She's. It seems like she has something to say about some of them, but most of them she really doesn't. And the dialogue is like not quite inspired in a way that I almost find interesting. She's just reciting the same thing, saying like, yeah, you um, have a boat. Boy, sure, would that be interesting? And like, oh, you have a plane. Boy, sure, that would be interesting. Well, th- that's when I really like <laughs> thought back on the film. It's, you know, the, 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 da- the new daddies were all being evaluated. And I, I realized that like 
she never really interacted with any of them. I mean, she really didn't. No. In any of every single one of those vignettes, she's like, she's brought in as the sort of like connecting thread to these vignettes. But then they're just doing their thing. Like she doesn't get on the plane. Or force feeding her milk and cereal. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But <laughs> but she's just like sitting in the background while all that stuff she's is totally un- uninvolved. Un- unfolding. So so yes, it, it, on a certain level it does track because I mean she didn't really get a chance to know these uncles very well. And also amusingly, right. like the 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 clown uncle is just an empty chair. Like he's gone. He's right. He he did do what he said he was gonna do. Yeah, he took off to, <laughs> to Switzerland. I love that sequence. It's like this long stitched together tracking shot of the different uncles as they receive their compliments from Donna. And once she finishes with each one of them, they they seemingly shut down. They just sort of smile and then like <laughs> tilt their heads towards the flow. And it's like, yeah, it's like the power switch was turned off on each subsequent uncle and Jerry no longer has to perform as them. But and in the end, she does make her choice, you know, and the suits are not happy with it because she does choose who we all knew she was going to choose from the very fucking first minute of the movie. Uh, she chooses Willard, but the, the, the suits tell her it must be a blood uncle. It must be an actual relative. And so just as we thought, there's no more tricks that Jerry can pull out of his sleeve. Uh, he comes back. We get one more Jerry, surprisingly a deus X Jerry appears. And it's, or would it be yeah. a Jerry X Machina? Jerry X Machina. A Jerry X Machina. <laughs> and Jerry appears as Everett the Clown out of nowhere. We thought he didn't even care or know about this, you know? And there he is. And, and Donna says, I'm going to go with him. And as they leave, it is, of course, revealed that it's not Everett. It's Willard dressed up as Everett. I don't know how they think they're going to get that by legal for the $30 million. Yeah, he just says, like, I'll give you the address to send the check to or whatever. $30 million. And nevertheless, yes, they walk towards the camera, and then it cuts a 180 around to them walking off into, uh, you know, happy land together. Willard and Donna, Jerry and the kids. Yeah. Off to uh, you know yeah. wherever, and like yeah, and like any Jerry Lewis film, it has a clever little the end. Oh, that's right. Uh, final parting message, right? So Jerry reveals that uh, as Willard, he received his clown makeup from a man who's just uh, painting the building, who's like working on some of the signs on the doors. And as a joke, he's like, "Oh, I I, I forgot one last piece," and he he hangs a, a little cardboard sign on Jerry's red nose that says "Wet Paint." And this is, of course, after he just gave Donna a big kiss on the lips, and she's got white paint all over her face. Uh, but when they tell Jerry to read this little sign, he flips it over, and on the back it says "The End." Um, got him. And almost every Jerry film ends with a little "The End" gag, like meta until the very end, deconstructing what a film. I- could be, you know, and I, I, I understand that you know, uh, times were different, but I, I, I did have to say, like, I felt a little unsettled watching this movie. I hadn't seen this one before. I'd seen other Jerry's, but, but I, I, I wrote down. There's a lot of yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of smooching that goes on between between him and and his his employer or yeah. this little girl. And I just wrote down, my final note. I wrote was a love story between a man and a child. <laughs> like, I, I couldn't. It's true. It was like a, a Jerry Lewis's Lolita on a certain level. Like this movie really <laughs> like felt like that to me. And and I, 
I couldn't help but walk away on that strange sort of note. Yeah, it's it, it's because yeah, it doesn't it, really feel like that because you're you know like ninety five percent of the movie is like Jerry solo gags that have nothing to do with Donna. But yes, then it is reinforced every uh, fifteen minutes how much Willard and Donna love each other and. Uh, yeah. They kiss on the lips, like, you know, ten times. Calling each other silly and sweetie. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's that whole scene at, like, the weird. hotel when they, like, they, they have a night where they, you know, much earlier in their journey where he's like, I can't drive all night. We got to pull off. And they have this weird interaction in, like, this hotel room where she enters like a like a movie starlet, you know? Like, ah, I slipped into something a little bit more comfortable, you know? And then... Again, in a very weird moment, that scene just ends with him like sitting in a darkened hotel room listening to a record of, isn't that, didn't you say it's his son's rock band? Yeah. It's his son's band. And he's just sitting and listening to this song. And I was like, in my head, is this about her? Is he sitting there and like listening to the song in the dark because he because he can't have Donna? He like knows. I mean, it's like a very weird. It's like a very weird. So strange. Very... Yeah, listening to Gary Lewis and the Playboys, who I believe are actually the same band that's in the closet yes. of the airplane yes. when the old lady say, "Can you turn down the music?" And Jerry opens the door, and there's a whole band stuffed inside a small little closet on the plane. The family jewels all the way down, baby. Absolutely, just yeah, shameless promotion. A lot of like again, very unsettling fools uh, this week in our journey together. Definitely, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, so Marsh, we gave you a a whole heaping pile of fools. Very gross fools. Uh, <laughs> you sure did. Hope it at least uh, hope it at least gave you gave you some laughs. Yeah, hope it was what you were looking for. They were as equally funny as they were troubling uh, in many regards. So I, I'd say that's an unqualified <laughs> success. Nice, nice. Are there any other cinematic fools that? you're really troubled by or just enjoy being around. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, when I think about cinematic fools, I think about those, those two great unemployed actors in London, 1968 with nail and I, uh, one uh, of my favorite movies, one of the funniest movies ever, uh, the exploits of yes, two, Complete fools going on holiday in the countryside and uh, having a shit time of it. You know, there, I had a friend that that also really uh, reveres that film. And he told me that, you know, if you want to take your viewing to the next level, you do the with nail and I drinking game where you drink right. when they <laughs> drink and see if you can make it through the whole film. And then if you want to go to the advanced version, he says you drink what they drink when they drink it. And I think, are they drinking like turpentine at some point? Lighter fluid too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Many things are ingested uh, in that movie. I could hang with the Camberwell carrot, but I'd probably stop after that. At, the, at the lighter fluid? Sure. fluid. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Yep, one of, my, one of my very favorites as well. Well, uh, it was my topic this week, of course, but next week it is Andy's topic, what do you have for us this time? Well, you know, as uh, we were talking about a little bit before off uh, off mic, uh, I tend to, you know, at times when I'm looking for inspiration in my my thematic choices, I, I, I like to look at current events a little bit. I like to look at the news. What's going on in the world? You know, what sparks my, my creativity uh, when I look at the 
the the milieu around me and uh man there's just not a lot of good news out there and not a lot of like really exciting or interesting <laughs> news everything just seems to just absolutely suck right now for the most part there are a few bright spots out there you know shout out to uh the amazon workers in new york by the way oh, yeah congrats uh but you know there's just a lot of like just everywhere i look villains in power in in all 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 the places I seem to look, a lot of like villains really seem to be controlling our our world uh, right now. So I thought I'd lean into that. Uh, but you know, we all know villains can be shitty and bad. So what I want <laughs> is you two to bring me a movie that features a villain you love. You know, villains perhaps are not all bad. So... Show me a film in which you think it's it's good to be bad. <laughs> bad to the bone, baby. Oh, Let's go. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. This is it, Maxon. The waterfront pool room. The waterfront pool, the best place in the world to gain illicit information. Surely you're not going in there. No, we're going in there, Madsen. And while in there, hear this now. While in there, you see, actually, I will allow myself to fall prey to one of the pool hustlers, as it were. And during the interim, I shall gain all the information regarding Donna's disappearance. At the same time, I might add, I'll kick the bounder in a pool game. <laughs> oh, but my dear Peyton, you've never played pool in your life. Oh, that may be so, Madsen, but I never played golf either, you recall? <laughs> I knocked down more caddies that day than any one of my group all put together. <laughs> oh, dear me, I do indeed recall that. It was simply incredible, old chap. <laughs> Thank you, Madsen. Then off to the pool court, eh? Uh, pool tables, I think, Peyton. You're being impertinent, Madsen. Oh, uh, sorry, Peyton. Quite all right. Here we go. 